Our reading of God's holy word is from the book of First Peter, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom, having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. 
because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are down at the end of our chapter. We've been looking at it these last several Lord's Days. Last Lord's Day, I cued in on gird up your minds. It was language about getting to work. God has a job for you to do as a son with him in the father's field. Gird up your minds, be sober, get ready to work. You're called to labor beside him. And when the particulars of that work were referenced in that sermon, I used effectively a placeholder in how I described it. I talked about building the kingdom. It's language that the Bible uses in various places. It is certainly the work that God would have us to do, but as I said, it was effectively a placeholder. The truth is, Peter is going to be a bit more specific as the chapter comes to an end. Uh, But what exactly is uh, the work that God would have us do? It must be something amazingly great. It must be something of profound importance. It is hard to picture the God of all creation laboring at things that are not significant. And if he is going to call us alongside himself to work, surely... The work of God must be something that is remarkable. It is something akin to the uh, seven labors of Hercules. It has to be just wonderful in its grandiosity because, after all, it is the work of God, right? There is a passage in the Gospel of John where our Lord is asked directly, What is the work of God that we should do it? It directly speaks to our question, and it is John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29, and this is what we read there. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. This is what God would have you do. It's his labor. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. And then the discussion moves on from there. There is no further elaboration of this particular part of it. One has to wonder if those whom our Lord was speaking to weren't a little surprised by the answer. God has called us to work. What is the works of God? They must be glorious. Well, the work of God is to believe on me, whom he sent. Believe in me, and that is the work of God. That's what he would have you do. They must have thought how anticlimactic. That is merely the work of God? You Just to believe in him who he sent, that's all? You can almost hear the voice of Naaman the Syrian going, you just want me to wash in the river to be healed? That can't be 
it, right? I mean, that's just, that, that's nothing, right? I mean, it's supposed to be something great. Well, the truth is his hearers were really missing exactly how impossible it was to actually do what our Lord was saying to do. The work of God is to believe in him who he sent. Can they do that? Well, when the apostle wants to summarize what it's like to, at the end of things, believe in the Lord Christ, he summarizes it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. And there, as the apostle stretches out just what exactly has to happen for someone to believe on him whom he sent, you begin to realize this is truly a marvelous, amazing thing that might happen. The apostle looks into the eyes of the believers in Ephesus, which uh, would include all believers throughout time because we all share the same nature. He says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So Jesus looks at humanity. They ask, what do you do to do the works of God? And he says, well, believe but they are people who are dead in sins, not sick, but dead. They are the walking dead because they're going about doing things, but they are doing sin because sin is Lord over them. It is passion working through them, and they are spirit-filled in that they are filled with the spirit of the prince of the power of the air, filled with the devil, and they are, in fact, by nature, children of wrath. They are inherently through and through something that God's righteous and holy nature finds abominable. So it may be a little harder to work the works of God than they might be thinking. But then the apostle goes on and he says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, when we were like that, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show his exceeding riches and his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's where we have our first reference to believing, uh, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So at the end of Paul's elaboration, we're actually doing certain works. We're working the work of God. But it's because we have faith, which God gives as a gracious gift, it's given to dead men who are made alive to be able to receive it. So doing the work of God according to Jesus to these would-be disciples in John 6 is probably a lot harder for them than they might imagine. 
They are dead men being told they must come to life. It's not anticlimactic in any way. The Apostle Peter, as this chapter comes to an end, answers the question as well. And his answer is not exactly the same as our Lord's, but it is not mutually exclusive. And in fact, many things in Scripture are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are dovetailed, integrated. And Peter's answer is that. He gives the answer of what it is to work in the Father's field. And what he says is, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. That doesn't sound all that difficult either. What is the work of God? Well, love the brethren. You know, love the brethren from a sincere heart, from a pure heart. Uh, the term is literally a pure heart. Uh, love them fervently. You can see in the passage, Peter doesn't miss a beat as it comes to an end. He's talked about working for God. Now he's talking about actions that we're to do. The actions are to love the brethren. From a sincere heart, a pure heart, how can that be difficult? Well, again, consider exactly how it is that the scripture has described us before we come into Christ. We are dead men. We're caught with passions. We are filled with the spirit of the prince of the power of the air. We are through and through totally abominable to God, but uh, work the work of God, love the brethren from the heart, the dead heart that God must make alive. Uh, love the brethren fervently, even though the prince of the power of the air was taking up residence in you. Uh, love the brethren when everything about you is not lovable, nor is it given to love. But this is what it means to gird up your mind and serve God, to work the works of God. Love the brethren sincerely and from a pure heart. Now, Peter is writing to converted people, and he is not reminding them of what they were before they were converted. In fact, he's doing the opposite. In the way he brings the chapter to the end, he reminds them that they have undergone conversion. He, in verse 22, which I just read, really harkens back to verse 2, where he described their conversion. He says they are, quote, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They were chosen by God the Father for what? Well, to be sanctified by the Spirit in sanctification of the Spirit. This sanctification would result in obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now in verse 22, he says, you have obeyed the truth by the Spirit. He, he hearkens back to that conversion. Uh, and because that's happened, you already love the brethren. Because God's sovereign conversion of someone changes someone. If you are brought to life in the family of God, 
the apostle can assume you do in fact love the brethren because that love is going to be very natural out of the fact you've been brought to life. Dead men walking according to the devil who are enslaved to lusts and pleasures are not going to, but living men who have had their condition reversed can be assumed to be doing it. Um, it's simply natural to love family. It is unnatural not to love family. Now, that doesn't mean that I haven't seen an awful lot of unnatural circumstances. But nevertheless, it is natural to love family. And Peter says, these are brethren. He's using family language. If someone is in the Lord Christ, like you are in the Lord Christ, they are your brethren. It is natural to love the brethren. Um, you have had a common birth. There is a exclusion that you share with them. You are together in the same family as opposed to those who are not in the family. That itself is going to lean you to love them. Uh, and you have been born of common seed, which I realize is synonymous with what I'm talking about, but it gets to the essence of the fact that you share a nature. You are like as like. If you belong to Christ, you have a family nature, you have a family position, you are born into the family by God's action, and it is just natural that you would have a natural family affection for your family. It is unnatural not to have it, though it can happen. Peter says, the Spirit has been acting on you. You've been sanctified by the Spirit. You've been brought to life. Uh, he brought you to obedience. He brought you to following Christ. And so I can assume that you do love the brethren, but love them fervently. You have been given it naturally by conversion, but love with a pure heart, love with a passion. <clears throat> it was difficult to pick which uh, reading of the law we would do today. Uh, I was going to quote, and I am going to quote, the one that we did in my sermon, but I also could have chosen the Beatitudes because... Who is the first person you encounter in the Beatitudes? Well, you encounter the pure of heart. Here, Peter quotes purity of heart. He says you should love the brethren with a pure heart. What is the implication of a pure heart? I usually go into this when I preach on Psalm 73, but it's been a long time since I preached that psalm. The... The first hearing of that phrase would suggest that your heart is spiritually pure, that it has been washed, it has been sanctified, it's no longer in the power of the prince, the power of the air, it's been set apart and cleansed, and all of that actually is a part of the concept of purity of heart. But if you go into the linguistics of it and how ancient people used the phrase it's a little more than that. It includes the idea of a singularity of heart. A pure heart has one focus. It is not bouncing around in its focus. 
It is locked on to a goal, and it is like a hound dog pursuing his prey. He's got the smell, and he's after it. Um, you ever hear the song where the guy is talking about he needs a little bit of Lisa and a little bit of Karen and a little bit of Joanne and all that? Okay, that song is exactly the opposite of purity of heart. A pure heart doesn't do that. It doesn't do that in love affairs, and it doesn't do it in anything else. It has a focus on its purity. And Peter says, you've been called to work with your father. He has labor for you to do. What it is, is you are to love the brethren with a pure heart, with a, a single focus, and you are to do it fervently with a passion uh, out of love. Love is one of the big three, and these things remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Uh, the work of God is to love the brethren. Here, however, we need to pause and ask, what does that mean? In other ages, maybe we would not have to. In other ages, the Church of Christ would be well-educated in what love means. And so when the apostle says, love the brethren, they would know what that means. But today, you can't count on that. The term love has been so degraded and so uh, filled with uh, different definitions that when Peter tells us, okay, love the brethren, we really got to ask, okay, what is love? And it becomes very clear when you do a survey of the scripture and you ask questions like, what does it mean to love Christ? Well, Christ says in John chapter 14, verse 15 and 23 to 24, if you love me, says our Lord, keep my commandments. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So Christ tells his disciples in the upper room, uh, if you love me, you'll be keeping my commandments, which is not generally the way the evangelical church tends to think about love and commandments. They tend to have a disparity between them, you've got law on one side and you've got love on the other. Law is bad, law condemns, love is good, love is warm, love is gushy, love is kind, and these things don't meet. But Jesus says, if you love me, if you have a, a warm, passionate heart for me, you will keep my commandments. And he defines it as my word, but he first says my commandments. <laughs> or the Apostle John, when you ask him, what does it mean to love God? Well, in 1 John 5, verse 2 and 3, the apostle defines that and says, By this we know the that we love the children of God when we love God. So in that, there is a sermon all to itself because John has just basically said, we can't love our brethren unless we love God, but that's not my major point. 
By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So again, the apostle deals with the issue of what does it mean to love, in this case, love God. And he says, you love God when you keep his commandments. So we've got a theme running here. Obedience to God's law in his commandments is actually equated in the New Testament with love for Christ and love for God. And in fact, as I said, right at the beginning, John says, you can't even love your brother if you don't love God, and loving God means keeping his commandments. But just to drive that point home, the apostle in his second letter asks the question, what does it mean to love the brother, which is exactly what we're dealing with here. And here he defines love for the brother. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning. So this is something God has wanted from the very beginning. That we love one another, love the brethren, as Peter is calling us to love. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. In fact, this is why when our Lord is asked by a lawyer of the Pharisees, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Our Lord answers back, the commandment is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So our Lord, when asked about the law, the commandments of the law, answers back with love. If you have that typical evangelical distinction that says, law is antithetical to love, then Jesus' words are nonsense. Christ, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest law? Was to love. Oh, but, but love is antithetical to law. You, you, don't, you don't love if you are under law. That cannot be, right? Because law is bad. Love is good. Not according to our Lord. According to our Lord, when he is asked what is the greatest commandment, he says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, he pulls that out of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, which are absolutely books of law. So what then? Is not gospel and law something totally different? They most certainly are. But they are different not in your moral action, they are different in why you perform that moral action. Law and gospel are covenantal estates. If you are in the estate of law, you are relating to God on the basis of how well you do the law. You are relating to God on the basis of, do I love you perfectly? And this is really not a good place to stand. If you relate to God on the basis of gospel, you relate to him on the basis of everything he has done for you in Christ. But law and gospel don't bring you a different ethic. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that directly in 
the book of First Peter, not First Peter, in, in First Timothy, chapter one, verse eight through ten. Here is Paul talking about the law, but at the end he's talking about the gospel. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the blessed gospel. So we start off talking at the beginning about the law. The law is against all these things, and Paul spills them out. But then at the end, he says, now all these things are against the gospel. And the law is against them, but the gospel is against them too. The actions of the people of God, whichever covenant they may be in, are measured by the moral actions of the law. It is how you love Christ. It is how you love God. It is how you love each other. And so... Peter says, this is the work of God, that you love the brethren. And that would be a very popular sermon in many, many churches today. But it would be heard as, go out and have a warm feeling about people. And that is not actually what love is. Love is obey God's commandments in regards to other people, in regards to God himself, in regards to Christ, this is love enacted, and this is what love does under the gospel. And so Peter calls us to work the works of God, to love the brethren, but it should be dawning upon us now exactly how utterly amazing that may be. It is not the simple feel-good call that you might expect and which you might have heard from numerous pulpits. The Father calls you to labor in his field. Gird up your mind for action. Be sober. Work as his child at working at what God wants you to do. What is it? Well, love the brethren fervently with a pure heart, which means obey God's commandments concerning them. That sounds a lot harder than it initially did. And it is. But thanks be to God that we are of the family. We are made to work this work, and we have been given the gifts and graces that we need. The average human being cannot, cannot love the brethren. First of all, they're not brethren, so how could they love them? But secondly, love gathers, sin separates, sin causes people to break from people. And that pattern starts in Genesis. You have the fall of man in chapter three, and then in chapter four, 
you have a series of situations where people break with people. You have the first murder. You have the first polygamy. You have the first uh, and the second murder. Uh, people are beginning to break apart. And again, turning to the New Testament, this is not really surprising. Uh, we were of a nature to fall apart before Christ. Paul says to Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men, for, and that word means because, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. So that's who we were before we were born again. We were hateful, and we hated everybody around us. We lived in malice and envy. There's nothing about this description about humanity that would suggest we would actually tend to pull together. We would separate and be broke apart. But God has done something. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And Peter has emphasized the Spirit many times in this chapter whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are not what we were. This Herculean task to love our brothers, which is not easy at all, is something that by the grace of God we can do, but it's because of the nature of the seed which created us. In our current culture, talking about seed and such is a little risque. It was not the case with the biblical writers, however. They use that language just right here. And the apostle says, remember what created you. You are born again, and in fact, that phrase is dear to us as Christians. Um, Peter uses it more in 1 Peter than anywhere else in the Bible. And here he takes us to the essence of the seed that we were created from. It was the word of God that was the seed that gave us life. Having been born again, says Peter, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Now, up to this point, he has been emphasizing the spirit. The spirit sanctified, the spirit called you to new life, the spirit gave you the power of new life. Now, at the end of the chapter, he is focusing on the word was the seed that gave you life. Again, just like is working the work of God to believe on him who he sent, or is it to love the brethren? Well, these things are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they dovetail very nicely. 
It was the Spirit who brought to bear the word which God used to give you life. And that word has a certain nature. That seed has a certain nature. You have literally been born again. You have been brought to a quality of life. And that quality of life began in the seed that was used. It is a seed that is eternal. The eternal word of life. The word abides forever. The apostle says, there's, there's almost nothing in this world that lasts forever. And certainly everything that has to do with humanity in its current estate doesn't abide forever. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of flesh is as plants that are going to collapse. Everything that's in this world is transitory, but not the seed God has used to transform you. The word of God is eternal. So if the word of God is eternal, can the word of God ever go out of style? Can the word of God ever be old-fashioned? Can we advance beyond an eternal thing? Can we improve on an eternal thing? The answer is obviously no. The apostle applies that concept of eternity to the word of God It's really a communicable attribute from God, but not to us. It's to the word, because the word is God-breathed. He has God-breathed out the word, what God says is part of his own nature. And Peter emphasizes that the seed which created us is eternal. It is incorruptible. There is nothing in this world much that is incorruptible. If you see something which is blessed and healthy today, uh, look at it 100 years from now and tell me if it has been incorrupted, if that's the way to put it. The truth is, most things corrupt over time. But the seed partakes of God's nature. It is uncorruptible. Uh, The word of God is perfect. Nothing ever creeps into the word of God and becomes evil or wrong over time. Uh, And, of course, again, that's God's nature himself. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is incorruptible, and his word partakes of that. It is incorruptible. Uh, His word, says Peter, is the very essence and sum of the gospel. As the chapter comes to an end, Peter says, now this word is the gospel which has been preached to you. There is good news in the world that good news is in the form of the Holy Scriptures, which is the Word of God, and the very essence of those Scriptures is to be the good news about Jesus Christ. That is the seed that the Spirit uses to give you life, and if you have that as your starting nature, then you are naturally going to love your brethren. You're going to need Peter's admonition to love fervently, because you know, I'm sure, that while it's natural to love your family, it's also natural to take them for granted. You're going to need Peter's admonition to love them with a pure heart. Again, it's easy to take them for granted. But you have been given a different nature that others don't have. 
never lose sight of the transformational aspect of the gospel. I come from a family who dabble in the counseling arts. Both my mother and father have counseling credentials. And as they come to the end of their life, I've noticed that both of them suffer from a certain bitterness in that they've told people all their lives what they need to do to make better lives, and uh, nobody's really listened to them much. And they're really pretty upset about that. Well, how could they have listened? They're not born again. But we are born again. We are born again of the seed. The seed which is eternal, this seed which is incorruptible, this seed which has the very family essence of God, we are something different. And so it is possible to love the brethren and to love them fervently. And if this commandment is kept, it will lead to all the rest of the commandments, and all the rest of the commandments have some very tangible stuff connected to them. Again, remember, the placeholder I used last week was building the kingdom of God. Well, now I'm saying loving the brethren is what God calls us to do. Well, where does building estates and kingdoms and uh, corporations and constitutions, why do men do that? What leads them to be profitable in the world? More times over than not, it is love of family, right? Men look at their children and they say, I want my children to live in a better world than I lived in. Or they consider their own brothers and their sisters and they say, I want to do something well for my family. Well, building the kingdom of God is building a kingdom for our father, whom we love. It is building a kingdom where our father shows the ultimate good to his children. And so, yes, building the kingdom of God is rooted very much in the essence of loving the brethren, loving them fervently, because why else would you be building the kingdom? You're building it out of love for God, and you're building it out of love for your brethren. It sounds so simple. It is literally impossible without the grace of God. But we are the people of the grace of God. God, thanks be to God.